0: Episode number 26 with Rob Asselstein. Uh, I've never really met Rob until last summer. I've known about him for a very long time, but we just kind of connected not too long ago. Super talented guy and uh, always has something on the go. Uh, He's really involved in studio life at the beginning of his career, piano player, and really moved into uh, producing some great live shows. And it's a great listen back and finding out how he got to where he is now. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Rob Asselstein.
1: When people ask me um, how I've come to where I am now, um I typically tell them that it's the the word I, I continue to come with is serendipity. Yeah. Um a fortuitous accidents uh to get to to get to the uh, the point in my life that I'm at now.
0: Seems like a lot of people are like that. Everything is always nothing's ever planned. I mean you you have an idea of what you maybe want to do, but the more I talk to people, the more I find out that there were so many little things that were accidents that shouldn't have happened that happened that got you to where you are, and that's that's, that's exactly
1: right. I grew yeah. up in uh, in a town called Wallaceburg. Yeah, And Wallaceburg is down uh, near Chatham and Sarnia, and we're about three miles from the border and about sixty miles from Detroit. And so when I was growing up in the late fifties and the sixties, um, the only uh, media that we had available to us was really coming out of Detroit. Yeah, um, London was somewhere that we only imagined. Toronto was on the other side of the world. Yeah. Um, so listening to a radio station called CKLW, the Big Eight out of uh, out of Windsor, was really where I got my first uh, taste of music. My my parents uh, were sort of musical. My dad sang in a barbershop quartet. Yeah. So I uh, I listened to a lot of barbershop music when I was growing up
0: you probably learn lots of harmonies.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Barbershop Harmony is unique, as, mm-hmm. as I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure you can appreciate. And when we were, uh, when we were kids, uh, live music uh, was really something that we either experienced at our high school um, or at a place called Rondo Park mm-hmm. uh, down, on, uh, down on Lake Erie. So it, it was one of those towns where there really wasn't much musical things happening. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, we just passed uh, February 9th. And on February 9th, 1964, I was sitting in front of the TV along with millions of other people to watch The Beatles for the first time wow. on Ed Sullivan. We had one of those old TVs that was sort of like a piece of furniture and had two barn doors on yeah, the yeah. front of it. So you opened Open the barn up. doors to, and you could swivel the TV yeah. to wherever you were sitting in the room. So I saw The Beatles and, and uh, it, it changed my life. When, uh, when I had been so, uh, so engaged with Motown music, really, because at Rondo Park we would see... Um, I saw uh, George Clinton on the Parliament Funkadelic for oh, the yeah. first time. Yeah. That was frightening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and from what I gather, George still looks pretty much the same as he did back then. But we would see... Uh, uh, Ted Nugent would come and play in, yeah. our, in our local arena... Uh, Bob Seger and uh, and the uh, Bob Seger system at that time yeah. would uh, would play um, uh, a group called the Sparrows, which yeah. later became Steppenwolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, played at our high school, we saw most of the Motown acts uh, live at uh, at the Rondo Park Pavilion, and it was one of those places where there was a we called it a racetrack around the outside. Yeah. So all the dancing would go on in the, in the center section. Yeah. All the girls would sit on the on the benches around the outside, outside. and the guys would cruise,
0: yeah. right? <laughs> and, and the racetrack.
1: Try to, yeah, that's what we called it. Mm-hmm. And try to pretend like we were brave enough to ask one of the girls to dance and most of the time we never did. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, if I step back, my mom and dad um, uh, decided that uh, I would be a musician uh, when I was about four years old, yeah. so they bought a, an old uh, Grinnell Brothers uh, player piano, and Grinnell Brothers oh, wow. was a was a, a store in in Detroit. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, I still have that player piano today. Do you? Yeah, it's in it's in storage. Yeah, in a U-Haul storage, and every once in a while in the summertime, I'll open up the door and sit there and play for a while. Wow! So I serenade the other folks at uh, at U-Haul
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> every every now and then. But uh, so I started, uh, I started a band with my brother and my cousin. Uh, so you're, playing,
0: you're I, playing piano, obviously. No, uh,
1: no. no. I, I never wanted to play piano. Oh, yeah? No, I, I wanted to play guitar. I wanted to be a Beatle. Yeah. And so uh, uh, my first uh, few years in the band was, was uh, playing guitar or attempting to play guitar as yeah. best I could as a young teenager. And I worked at a, a grocery store not far from our home um 85 cents an hour was a great job. Yeah. Loved it and uh and uh, I was at what they called a carryout at that uh, point in time so there was always a bagger at every cashier. Yeah. And then we would carry people's groceries out to their car or because it was a small town we'd actually carry them right to their house, yeah. you know, if they if they were within a few blocks. And one uh one night uh, the manager uh found that there was uh, the, the guy in the produce department wasn't was sick or something and couldn't come in and he asked me if I would come over and work in produce and I said sure why not it seems like an easy enough job and he showed me how to prepare some of the uh, uh, vegetables that go onto to the counter and I didn't know at the time but lettuce uh, arrives at the store with a stock on it oh, yeah. okay and so he said well all you have to do is you cut the stock off and then you put the lettuce up on the on the shelf and it's all good yeah so he showed me how to do it, and uh, in those days, there was a, a machine uh, that had a round um, um, piece on the end of it yeah. with cowling that came out around it and a razor uh, on this wheel.
0: I can see where this at.
1: Yeah, So the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the wheel uh, spins really fast, Yeah. and you're supposed to stick the lettuce stalk straight in yeah. and pull it out, Okay. and then put it over in a, in a bin. So I did the first few, and I was doing just fine. And then I put one in, and I turned my hand to the right, and my second finger on my left hand um, got hit with that razor uh, about three times on the knuckle. Yeah. And so uh, my finger, the the furthest extension of my finger from the knuckle, was straight down. Oh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so they rushed me to the hospital. Um, They put my finger back in the right position on my left hand, which a guitar player knows is a very important hand, and I had to wear a splint. So I couldn't uh, play guitar. And so I went back to the piano uh, because of my piano lessons, and I hated playing piano as a kid. But then somebody told me that chicks uh, dig musicians. So I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a, a, a whack. So when you've got a finger, a split on your finger, on your left hand, yeah. and you're playing piano, you can only really play octaves. Yeah. So that's that's all I could do. And uh, most of my musician friends will tell me that don't hire Rob for his left hand work because it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he plays a lot of <laughs> octaves, but that's about it. So um, uh, that became, you know, what I was playing in the band. Uh, so did you keep your... Uh- Produce job, or did you get back to? I went back, back to bagging, bagging after that, <laughs> <laughs> and and then uh, uh, a couple of years later, um, I was uh, on my bike uh, watching a, a baseball game with a friend of mine, and we'd had our bikes leaned up against the, uh, the chain link fence, and our hands over the top of the chain link fence. Yeah. And back in those days, chain link fences had little uh, crosspieces. Yeah. Cross pieces on the top where they're very sharp. Yeah. And, uh, and the guy, uh, that I was with thought it would be funny to kick my bike out from underneath me. And I reached up with my right hand to keep myself from falling yeah. and managed to puncture the palm on my right hand. Wow. <laughs> Lucky <laughs> you. Yeah. So that explains a lot of my piano playing over the years. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're but you're an the, injured man. I am an injured man indeed. And, uh, so, you know, we when we went back to playing with the band we brought in some other guys. And one time at the high school they had two pianos on the stage and I, I did the two piano thing with one piano with my left hand and one piano with my right hand and yeah. had a lot of lot of fun doing that.
0: But uh, So you're playing mostly kind of Beatles
1: and Yeah, and town Yeah, and, and kind of rockabilly ish yeah. kind of kind yeah. of stuff. Um we uh, had our record player out in the living room, and the piano was in the back room. So, in order to learn a song, because there were no cassette machines, yeah. I would have to be in the living room listening as as best as I possibly could, then run to the back room yeah. and try to recreate Great. that sound. <clears throat> so, it worked out for the most part, and uh, and uh, and uh, you know, it, it ended up I did uh, uh, acquire a couple of girlfriends as a result of being in the in the local band. And I was kind of presented as the, as the guy that was going to be a musician. My brother uh, is a sportsman, so he's a hockey player and a lacrosse player. So that's kind of how the family culture split. He was the sports yeah. guy. I was the music guy. The um, uh, at the time we were all kind of programmed uh, in high school to leave the town. Uh, nobody was really encouraging anybody to stay home. Yeah. It was all, what are you going to do? What Are you going to go to university? Are you Are going to get a degree? And because music was the only thing that I knew, um, I studied uh, uh, harmony and theory uh, with the local piano teacher, you know, in her yeah. front room. And so I studied grade one and grade two uh, harmony and theory, which is one of the prerequisites to get into university. And I kept uh, with my piano lessons and uh, got my grade 10 piano. Yeah. All the while uh, playing not like the classical guys. I, I, I could never really bring myself to be a classical musician. I was more of a, uh, a barroom kind of player, more of a, a R&B you know, style, yeah. style player. And uh, uh, so when time came to uh, 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 try out for university... I applied to five universities. Um, four of them turned me down <laughs> on the same day. My brother's turned Oh, no down. way. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a real sad story guy. I mean, I'm just realizing that. Anyhow, um, so the last place that I auditioned at was uh, uh, what was called at that time uh, Waterloo Lutheran University, mm-hmm. which is now Wilfrid Laurier. And uh, they didn't have a faculty. They had a music department. And uh, the chairman of the department at the time was a fellow by the name of Walter Kemp, Doctor Walter Kemp, yeah. and uh, I came in for the audition. I knew that I had failed miserably at Queens and at U of T and at Western.
0: <clears throat> what do you think? The Were you nervous going in, or is it? Well, what, what, by the
1: time I got to Waterloo, no, I was pretty yeah. much you know resigned that I was going to be doing something other than music. Yeah, but I came up and uh, and uh, uh, I said to him. I'm not a great classical piano player, but I'm applying here to be in the in the piano program. And so he said, uh, well, just play something for me. So I just noodled around like I had with the band or w- like I did when I was at home.
2: Yeah.
1: And he said, okay, well, let's do this. He said, I'm going to play the first half of a phrase and I want you to finish it. And and for me, that was really easy Yeah. because it was like any song that I had ever played. So, that, you know... It, song form is question and answer, right? Yeah. So so I played uh, the answer to the things that he was uh, playing and um, he's, he accepted me into the university and he said, don't change. And I said, really? That's that's pretty amazing that you don't want me to change. And he said, well, you're going to learn a lot of theory, uh, but what I want you to do is to bring yourself to this, Exercise yeah. instead of us trying to put you into a pigeonhole. Yeah. Okay. So um, improvisation uh, was something that was very easy for me. Um, I learned uh, writing in forms, uh, fugues, chorales, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And uh, and he would tell me that. I'm going to give you again an opening phrase, and I'm going to send you away. I want you to write a, a two-part fugue, or a four-part fugue, or a toccata any of those other forms. But he said, "I want you to, I want you to write rhythms that make sense to you." Yeah. And so I would write swing. <laughs> one time, uh, uh, I I listened to uh, um, oh, now I'm going to forget um, uh, Aqualung. Who, who uh, are you? No, yeah. Jethro Tull. Okay, there you go. And I listened to uh, them play "Bourree," and then I I had known the classical version of "Bourree," and I heard the swing version from a rock band. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I thought, okay, that's that's exactly, you know, where I'm at. That's what I like. So within the music department at that time, I became known as the guy who wasn't the classical guy. He was the he was the secular guy that was coming in and, and, and stirring things up long hair, beard, you know, the whole the whole nine yards.
0: <clears throat> but that's pretty interesting that your teacher saw the value of that because I think a lot of teachers wouldn't, but obviously he must have had part of that in him as well.
1: Well, I consider, yeah, he was a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think that he felt that people at university were largely being prepared to go back into the, educational system to become teachers yeah so you learn how to do something that's 200 years old and then you go back and you teach somebody else 200 years old and it's just perpetual it's just you know nothing changes so uh, he was fortunately a very skilled uh reader um and piano player Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and my piano um uh, uh capabilities in the in the classical field were limited like i said so I would write these things, uh, and then I would hear him play them, oh, yeah. and they sounded pretty good. Yeah. You know? and there was no, there was no digital recording at the time, and, and the music department, really comp- uh, com- consisted of two houses on uh, on a street. <clears throat> One was called the Piano House. No insulation, you know, yeah. but pianos in every room. Yeah. So I would virtually live there. And one of the things that uh, that in my study I learned was uh, um, figured bass, <clears throat> and I'll come back to figured bass in in a moment. So figured bass and improvisation were two of the, the programs that I was involved with. Yeah. And uh, I'll jump a, I'll jump way ahead uh, when I learned the Nashville number system. Yeah. And I said, "Hey guys, this is figured bass. This is this is 400 years old. This is not new." You know, a one is a one is a one, whatever key you're playing in, yeah. you know, in a 6-4 chord or, you know, any of the other uh, numeric references that people make in, in, in uh, Nashville or when we're doing sessions <clears throat> are really rooted in, in uh, figured bass oh, yeah. from, from back in those days. So when I was at school, um, uh, I was still trying to write. I was still trying to play the kind of music that I wanted to play. And uh, this is where the serendipity comes in. Um, a young lady invited me to a party. And she said, I want you to meet this guy. His yeah. cousins are building a recording studio. Okay. I thought, oh, okay, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I initially wanted to be a film composer. And I still, I still follow film composers quite a bit. But I met uh, Paul Mercy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, uh, up until that point, I don't think I had ever heard country music <laughs> at all. Yeah. Nothing. Tommy Hunter, maybe. Yeah, just before the uh, hockey games on Saturday night. Yeah. <clears throat> so Paul said, "Yeah, yeah, my cousins are building a studio. Come on out to Elmira and uh, and like to show you around." So I went out and uh, and I said to uh, Larry and Lloyd and Raymond, uh, "I'd love to. I'd love to work here. I'd love to do something." And they said, "Well, you're a piano player, right?" And I said, "Yeah." And he, they said, "Well, why don't you just sit down and play a little bit for us?" So I did to the best of my abilities at that point. And uh, they said, well, I'll tell you what. You're going to school. Um, we'll have you come out and play on some demo sessions. Mm-hmm. Because they also owned a publishing company, Mercy Brothers Publishing. And I said, that'd be great. I've, I'd never done a session before. Um, um, and they invited me out.
0: <clears throat> so what, what age would you have been at that point, do you think?
1: Oh, probably 20, thereabouts, yeah. 19, 20. Um, and so the very first session that I uh, played on the mercies played on it and they had two other guys, they had a guitar player and a steel player and the guitar player was uh, red Shea yeah. and the steel player was Ollie strong. Yeah. And I had no idea who red Shea and Ollie mm-hmm. strong were at that point. It was only afterwards that I found out, well, they play with Gord Lightfoot. Oh, okay. Very nice. And, uh, and red took me aside and he said, son, when you're doing sessions, they're only going to feed you pizza and Kentucky fried chicken. And it's going to get grease all over your hands. So I'm going to tell you how to get rid of that grease. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, he told me, just wash your hands with cold water, no soap, no nothing, and, and the grease will come off. And I've, I've done that before every show that I've ever done since that, since that time. Oh, really? And, uh, and it's amazing because as a piano player, I mean, you can slip and slide all over the place. Yeah. But uh, by doing that, you know, you get a firm, firm grip on the, on the keyboard. So I carried on uh, uh, with my, uh, my uh, teachings at university. And one of the programs, uh, one of the courses that I was in was an orchestration course.
2: Yeah.
1: And my orchestration professor was a guy by the name of Victor Sawa. And Victor played uh, clarinet on the uh, original Scott Joplin Redback Book album. So oh. when you hear The Entertainer, mm-hmm. that's uh, Vic playing that. Yeah. And uh, he was only a couple of years older than me. And, uh, so we, I would orchestrate, uh, things and obviously with no way to hear them. So everything was done from your head yeah. at the time. So most of the, most of the review of the orchestrations were okay. Have you doubled the third? You know, mm-hmm. what, what interesting texture? Have you got the violins two octaves apart instead of one octave apart? Cause it sounds better if they're two octaves apart. And we would uh, do that for about a half an hour. Then we'd go and shoot pool for the rest of the day. All right. um, <clears throat> and then the mercies uh, said, well, you're, you're studying that orchestration stuff, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, they said, uh, well, we need strings on, on one of these demos. Could you write the orchestration? Could you write the arrangement for the strings? And of course I said, sure. Yeah. Of course I can. <clears throat> of course I can. And uh, and so I started uh, I started doing string writing for for demos, and then uh, uh, I, I, then they asked me if I could arrange vocals, and I said, "Well, sure." You know, so it was about teaching you know the, the people who were doing the background vocals. And I had I was very fortunate to work with uh, Ed Weidman. I don't know if you know remember Ed. No, I don't. Uh, Ed was with a, um, a gospel group in Toronto called the King James Version. Okay and And my story ends up being that I'm one degree from almost everybody who's ever been famous in the world <laughs> because if you watch uh elvis's uh Aloha concert mm-hmm. uh from Hawaii, you'll see five guys in the gospel quartet um <clears throat> the There were two bass singers, yeah. I'm um, trying to remember the name of the, the bass JD JD Sumner, Sumner okay. yeah. JD uh, allegedly, and I can't confirm this was having some substance abuse issues. Yeah, uh, around that time, so whoever was hiring uh, the musicians uh, knew about Ed, and they brought Ed down to shadow JD. Yeah, during that show. So if you if you watch the if you watch the the performance, Ed's close to the mic just in case JD. Fades. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yes, yeah, so, so, so I started working with those guys. Um, did some more sessions with Red and with uh, with Ollie. Then eventually um, uh, got connected with uh, Pepe Francis with Mike. Yeah. And Mike started doing sessions with us. Kim Brandt uh, played bass on a lot of that stuff back in those days. <clears throat> um, and so I became sort of the on call. Uh, arranger and and piano player
0: and back then so this probably what this in 70s? Early, 70s early 70s yeah there was a lot of you think back at the different chunks of time of how music has changed but string arrangements were really big and and those, they were yeah at that time yeah it was almost as if because really there wasn't any synthesizers at that point no um so that was, you know, what synthesizers would have been doing. Well,
1: um, uh, we had a, a, a young fellow who uh, had an ARP Odyssey. Oh yeah. Okay, and couldn't play for his session, so we confiscated the, the Odyssey, <laughs> <laughs> and that became the house the house synthesizer. Yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm an old guy. Fender Rhodes just had just come out in that yeah. in that time, so you know all these different keyboard sounds that were, that were suddenly available to us. Now, this, the, the arp uh, never even came close to the string sound, so we always had live strings, um, and I would uh, contract people from the Kitchener Symphony uh, and s- some folks that lived in Elmira yeah. uh, to come out and, and, and work on stuff. Um, one young fellow, uh, I gave a job for the very first time, and he's now with the San Francisco uh, Symphony, and he's the principal violinist with the Skywalker Orchestra for uh, George Lucas, so he's do- he's doing very well. And this I is guess. kind of th- there's a theme to this as you'll as as you'll hear as I go on. Yeah. Um, and uh, so initially, when I was working uh, for the uh, Mercies, um, I was working for Scale, you know, to yeah. do sessions. And it came time for me to uh, to graduate, and I wrote some very bizarre things that were very you know, trendy, uh, at that time, uh, avant-garde music, uh, and, uh, was able to record prepared piano, uh, stuff out of the, out of the studio and was doing a lot of tape op work there as well, learning how to edit, um, learning mostly how to locate, you know, on the tape machine for yeah. the, for the other folks that would come in. And, uh, so when it came time to graduate, um, I asked the Mercies, could I come and work here full time? Yeah. And, uh, they fought about it, uh, and, uh, bless them. They said, yes, that I could come. And I, I very happily reported to my parents that I was now a studio musician and that I was working in a recording studio and I broke my mother's heart. Oh no. Cause she fully expected that I would become a teacher. teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, mom, (laughs) not going to happen. And, uh, and, uh, so then, I, I traded in my session scale for a weekly salary.
3: Yeah,
1: prepared to do anything and everything. Now that studio, man, it was it was great. It was Westlake Audio Design. Uh, we had a, a Neve console. that was originally an eight-track console that was souped up to sixteen tracks. Yeah, um, we had <clears throat> fantastic uh, Yamaha uh, piano. Um, you know, t- a two-inch MCI machine, Studer, uh, uh, machines, Studer mastering machines. So it was really the state of the art uh, at that time. Uh, I don't
0: don't think I ever was in that studio. Like I remember when, you know, they got that going and, and, you know, obviously I was pretty young. Um, But uh, I'm trying to remember if I ever got to their studio, but I, you know, it was certainly the talk around, you know, that was the studio to go to or, um, you well, know. at
1: that time, uh, in the through the seventies, we were recording pretty much the majority of the country music that was being played in Canada. Yeah, and the way the Mercies taught me about playing country piano was they gave they gave me a copy of Coal Miner's Daughter, and they said, "Go home, learn this. You'll never need to know another lick. <laughs> lick number forty two, number forty three, yeah, so on and so forth." So, I learned how to. Um, uh, Improvise using uh, Pig Robin style yeah. um, and Floyd Kramer style, and that was really the vogue, you know, at that time. Um, I've always considered myself more of a rhythm piano player than a lead piano player. So when it comes time for the fancy right hand work, I bring somebody else in. Yeah, um, uh, but I uh, I generally think that I have a a, a pretty good uh, ability to. Uh, sit in a groove uh some of my friends will tell you that i arrive a tenth of a second before everybody else (laughs) And in the the digital world now that that i can work with that yeah but excuse me we were talking about natural records so i'm always just a little just a hair ahead but uh, of everybody but you know the records did well anyway yeah and So uh, my $175 a week um, paid uh, rent, uh, bought some groceries, and paid for my car. Um, uh, So I was okay with that. And um, I got married in 1976. And um, my wife at the time had no idea what the music business was like and wasn't crazy about it. She only made one rule, and that was that she always wanted to come through the front door. Yeah. Musicians always come in the back door. I would say, come on, it's kind of cool to come in the back door. No, 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 I want to come in the front door. So so we did that. The other guys that I worked with along the way, um, uh, Ed Ringwald, Pee Wee Charles, and I did a lot of of sessions together. And after I started working at the Mercies, um, they um, discovered a young lady from London by the name of Marie Bottrell. And, uh, and so I started working with Marie. Uh, I was doing a lot of co writing with uh, uh, Terry Carice and Bruce Rollins. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Terry and Bruce would bring in their songs, and then we would kind of rework them a little bit. And um, um, I uh, forfeited credit uh, for pretty much most of the time I was there. I have I have writing credit on one song. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> it's always a tough thing when you come in at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Cuz you know, you have a song that's done and you basically you're tidying it up, yeah. making it better. But what you're doing is still pretty major changes to the song. Um, but a lot of people don't end up getting that credit that they deserve at that point, but
1: and you know what? It was just—it was—it was really for the love of the people that I was working with, mm-hmm. and for the love of the songs that they were writing. <clears throat> I never really felt that I was um, um, uh, changing dramatically what they were doing, uh, but uh, Terry and I would work on songs. Uh, Windship, I think, is one song that I can remember specifically, and my. Participation really was more on the uh, on the arrangement and the feeling. I would change some chords. Yeah. You know, we would we would change some of the melody lines, but not a lot, uh, because they were really Terry and Bruce's songs. They weren't my songs, but I felt like I was I was participating. Um, and the more I started uh, doing the strings, well, you're arranging the strings. Well, now you have to produce the strings, okay? Right? Because we don't know what to ask the string players to do or not do. So because there was no way to uh, uh, hear anything before the session, and you know the clock's running and people are being paid, um, my tendency as far as strings and horns uh, were concerned was to overwrite and then cut. Yeah. It's much easier to cut in the studio than it is to be creative uh, uh, on, yeah. on 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 the spot. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, I worked on uh, a, a bunch of uh, Mercy Brothers albums. And uh, a bunch of other people as well, um, The uh, worked with Terry Sumption, Dallas Harms, yeah. uh, Gary Buck, <laughs> all these names that, you know, that I haven't said out loud for a long, long time. Yeah. And uh, they were always very gracious to me. And so in some cases, it would be, well, um, we need you to produce the session. <clears throat> so slowly but surely, I, I just kept adding these other responsibilities to what I was doing. The Mercies would be out on the road. You know, we needed to uh, finish a mix on, on one of their songs. So Paul uh, was the engineer at that time. And Paul and I would do the, uh, produce the mix. Yeah. And that would be the, you know, the way the song came out. Um, Loving You from a Distance was one of the early songs that we did um it did very well on the charts um silver dish cafe was another one that they did um and uh you know as as they became more comfortable working with me <clears throat> they brought me in to work on some stuff with Marie um so i um i played piano did the arrangements did the strings designed the album cover <laughs> for uh, Marie's first record uh, called Just Reach Out and Touch Me. yeah, And uh, I think Marie won Best New Artist of the Year, I think, at that point. Um, then um, a, few, a couple of years later, um, Lee Bach uh, was another writer that worked with the Mercies uh, yeah. a fair amount, <clears throat> brought in a song called The Star. And uh, it was intended for Marie. Um they gave me a lot of latitude um, with that song, and it became song of the year, um, uh, and has uh, propelled Marie into a, a certain level of, of fame here in Canada. Yeah. And I said, okay, here's what I'd like to do: I just flat top, um, uh, two male background singers, Dobro, and uh, and string quartet. Yeah. <laughs> And at that time, everybody was doing the big flashy songs. And I said, well, this song in particular is a very solitary kind of song. So I said, let's just, let's just give it a whack and, and see what happens. And uh, at that time, I had also been doing some sessions with a fellow by the name of Al Briscoe. Mm-hmm. And Al was living in Toronto, and we were in Elmira. And I called Al, and I said, come on out to the studio. I want you to play Dobro on one song, pay it full scale. Yeah. And he said, for one song? And I said, Yeah. I said, "Are you nuts?" And I said, "Well, I got a I got a pretty good feeling about this about this song, and it's and it needs a solo, and I think you're the guy, you know, to be able to deliver that." And so Al came out. We did. Uh, we recorded the song. Um, I think I'm trying to remember. I think Marie got artist, female artist of the year that year. It won song of the year. I can't remember if it won album of the year. I Can't remember. Um, but, uh, it was one of those experiences that you just, you know, felt that it was the right thing to do at, at at that particular time.
0: So how did that, how did that feel for you as the guy that, you know, put the song together and, and, uh, did it just feel like very natural or you just,
1: it was, it was, it was, yeah, really, really very natural. Um, um, it didn't do anything for my career. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, it you know, uh, I thought when Marie sang it, it was such a natural song for her to sing. And I think if she's listening to this, she'd probably tell you that she wish she'd never recorded that song. Because I always say to people when they're coming to do a session with me and they're picking out their songs, I say, well, pick out songs that you want to sing when you're 60. Oh, yeah. Because if it's a hit, you will be. Yeah. And you'll be asked to sing it all mm-hmm. the time, yeah. over and over and over. And I think to this day uh, Marie gets asked to you know to sing that uh, sing that particular song, and uh, she and I have been friends for a long time so yeah. and I'm grateful to her for allowing me to convince her to sing that song you know that particular way <clears throat> excuse me so ray uh, Ray Mercy did the background vocals uh string quartet were uh, a couple of people from Elmira and a couple of people from um the Kitchener Symphony yeah. And uh, and you know I'm really proud of that record, and I think that uh, I think that what that's one of the one of the only times in my career where the clock wasn't running. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, because it was a Mercy studio, it was a Mercy publishing song, it was a MBS Records artist, so there was no get it done by noon you know, yeah. kind of thing to it. On the other hand, it happened very quickly. Uh, the song didn't take very long to to uh, to make. Uh, um, uh, Larry played rhythm. There was no bass. There was no lead guitar. So I think we I think we did the track in a couple of hours.
0: I think the the good songs always kind of happen that way. Yeah, the, those are always the ones that take forever, and you have to keep reinventing the song and trying new things. Are the ones that that need aren't quite there yet. And there's something not quite right,
1: and you sit back and you say that was too easy.
0: Yeah, can I do it again? nope
1: <laughs> not gonna. It's
0: happen. nice when it comes quick and <clears throat> quick and easy, and it all falls in. Yeah, but then you always get that thing where it's like, um, am I missing something? That was, you know, I should be doing something else, or yeah. But it's a nice feeling when it comes together quickly.
1: Yeah. One of the last records that I did uh, uh, with the Mercies was uh, well, second last, I guess. It was called uh, the album ended being ended up being called homemade. Yeah. And we came, uh, we they we collectively came to the uh, determination that we should call it homemade because it was literally made in you know at home. Yeah. Uh, Larry's uh, daughter did the album cover. <laughs> I think she was eight, something oh, yeah. like that. No, oh, it looks like an eight-year-old. Yeah. You know, did the did the album cover? And, uh, I played piano. Uh, I arranged the strings. I did uh, a little bit of background vocal work on it. Um, I did most of the arranging and a lot of the final production. And, uh, it came down at that point, uh, people's names were starting to get put on records Yeah. and, um, I was, uh, gently notified that my name couldn't be on the record that many times. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, okay, then, then I'd like to use a pseudonym um, as the producer. So if anybody has that record, uh, Homemade, it's uh, the producer is the very sly Billy Vi. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And Bill Vi is my uncle. <laughs> so... Somewhere in his grave, he's rolling around claiming that he's a record producer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so you guys were probably doing a lot of jingles, too, right, at the time?
1: Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, the, the, the fellas, and thanks for that cue, the fellas uh, started a company called the Elmira Jingle Factory. Yeah. Um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of businesses were buying jingles at the time. Yeah. And uh, over my time, I think I wrote 300 or so uh, commercials. I wrote the, uh, the commercial for Zares here locally. Uh, I did a very bizarre synthesizer commercial for uh, a company. I
2: forget.
1: It was a, a stereo company. Yeah. And so I did like 30 tracks of synthesizer, just bouncing everything down to you know, two tracks. So the noise on the tape was like crazy by the time we were finished. Yeah. But it was a hoot, uh, hoot making that. The guy that, uh, that owned uh, Dutch Boy Food Markets at the time called me up and he said, are you the guy that wrote that Zairs commercial? I said, "Yeah." He said, "I want you to write one for me, for Dutch Boy." I said, well. I try to do my best work for everybody, and that's kind of the grocery category, you know, in this in this area. Yeah. So I said, "Tell you what, um, write me a letter and and tell me all the reasons why I should uh, shop at Dutch Boy." So he was uh, very nice about it. He wrote me back a letter, and uh, for those who are old enough to remember Dutch Boy food markets, they might remember that the Slogan was, Dutch Boy Does It Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that came right out of his letter, uh, and, and, uh, and we prepared it that way. Paul and I talked a lot about um, rhythms <clears throat> when we were making these commercials because we always thought of them as just mini-records. You know, mm-hmm. wanted to really make them sound great. And um, you get a certain audience that claps on one and three, and a certain audience that claps on two and two four. And four. Yeah. So we said, well, what if we make all four beats strong? <laughs> so you're, you win, and you're correct no matter what you do. Yeah, <clears throat> And that's, uh, that's kind of the format that, uh, that came out for the Zeres commercials. So over the years, excuse me, we did all kinds of them. And uh, as the 70s went on, Everybody wanted, a, you know, the regular commercial that we wrote, and then they wanted a Christmas version, so it' come the Jingle Bells. Yeah. And then towards the uh, latter part of the 70s, everybody wanted a disco version. Oh, yeah. Which was painful. <clears throat> yeah. But well, we did them, you know. And, uh, and uh, so my, my time with the Mercies was a huge education, just gigantic. I mean, I could, I could be in that control room or in that studio 24 hours a day if I wanted to. I could try things. Um, there was one. Uh, there was one song on homemade. I think it was called Jamie. And I wanted the sound of a triangle, but I wanted the pitch on the triangle to change. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we tried everything from you know hanging on to the, the the reels of the tape machine to slow them down, speed them up. And none of that worked. Yeah. <clears throat> so I had been studying acoustic physics at university. I thought, ah, I know how to do this. So we got a bucket of water, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and put the mic right close to the water, yeah. tapped the, the triangle, and then dipped it into the water. Oh, wow. And that changes the length of the vibrating source. So the pitch changes. Mm-hmm. Not very much, you yeah. know, but just enough to be subtle, and that's exactly what I wanted. So experimenting was, was something that we did a lot, uh, doing that sort of thing. So I, I worked at the at the Mercy Studio through the '70s, and then uh, at the end of the '70s, um, technology just went nuts. Um, the consoles were coming out—24 uh, track, <laughs> 36 tracks, 48 tracks, automated uh, boards—you uh, know—and all the rest of that stuff. And in spite of the fact that our new board was was really state of the art. It was very difficult to keep clients. We did a lot of the music for the Stratford Festival at mm-hmm. that time. Peter Ustinov came out and did some stuff, and Maggie Smith, and yeah. the rest of those folks doing voiceovers and doing do, doing some off-stage music recording. So uh, it was very difficult. Like I say, clients were leaving to go to the the newest, the latest, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and a lot of the studios in Toronto were being built at that time, so Manta was being built and. And uh, um, uh, Phase 1 oh, yeah. and, and a lot of those places. Um, Eastern Sound was still like the Mecca, you know, at, at that time. And I had done some sessions there that I'll talk about in a second. Um, so the Mercies uh, uh, decided they had to close the place. And um, uh, I was told on a Monday that uh, they were closing at Christmas. Three days later, I found out I was going to be a dad for the very first time. Oh, wow. And three days after that, I left. Okay. Um, And uh, people were very kind to me. Um, uh, There was some initial discussion about trading off uh, some time with uh, uh, some folks in uh, the Ronnie Profit show Mm -hmm. uh, when it was going. Uh, I didn't want to drive to Toronto, so I didn't want to do that. Um, There were a couple of people that were going on the road. I wasn't crazy about that because I knew I was going to be a dad. So I just kind of hung my shingle out as a freelancer and, um, and did some work initially with uh, Terry Crease. Or not Terry Crease, Terry Sumption, rather. I assume, yeah. So uh, I uh, arranged, uh, produced, and played piano on um, Midnight Imitation oh, for yeah. Terry. I did that record for him and Loneliest Star in Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a vocal session, and Terry asked me to ask his agent... To go home, to leave the studio. Yeah. And I said, "Man, he's your he's your agent, not mine." He said, "No, no, you got to tell him." So I told him, and I won't name names, but that was the last time I ever spoke to that gentleman, and it's the last time he ever reached out to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I I found myself um, unemployed. Um, uh, without a whole lot of uh, record credits, aside from the people who played on the sessions who knew about me. yeah, And uh, uh, so I wasn't real successful at finding a whole lot of work. Um, it, it, oddly enough, after I left the studio was when uh, um, the CCMA Awards came out. Oh, by the way, my CCMA membership number mm-hmm. was 11. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think we were the first ones mm-hmm. to get involved. Yeah. Um And I think it was in 1982, uh, the CCMA awards, uh, my work that I had either played on or worked on in some respect was nominated in every category. So that's, I'm pretty proud of that. You Um, but being out of work, um, uh, and, and I, I decided that I would leave the music business to try to get a real job because I was going to be a dad. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I bumped around, you know, trying to get work and trying to get a job and still had my long hair and a beard, and that didn't go over well with, you know, some folks, I'm sure. And my mother sent me a letter um, that had a, a two-line newspaper ad clipped uh, out of the Cambridge Times. Mm-hmm. And it was from my mom's best friend who was living in Cambridge, and and she said, it's it's not the music business, Rob, but it's close, <laughs> <laughs> it was a job uh, uh, to work at a radio station. They had two, uh, two job openings, one in the creative department yeah. and one in the sales department. So I went for the interview, uh, and I'm sure I looked like you know a hippie from God knows where. Yeah, And so I explained to them what my background was. I said, I did jingles, did all these jingles, and I did all these sessions, <clears throat> and I said, I need a job I can't afford to fail. Mm-hmm. That's that was my pitch, right? And they said, well, "Okay, well, uh, it was a small station, 1,000 watts.
3: Wow!
2: Just
1: like uh,
0: powerful, just like WKRP,
1: <laughs> 1,000 watts in Cambridge, a station that was called CFTJ at the time. Mm-hmm. And the joke was that it was uh, they, it stood for Come forth to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was actually <laughs> named after the previous owner's daughter, Trudy, Trudy Jean. Oh yeah. Um, uh, so I said, well, which of the two jobs pays more? And they said, "Well, on a salary, the creative pays more, uh, but in the long term, the sales job's going to pay more I said well how much is how much is the sales job? Seven hundred and fifty dollars a month? Yeah. I'll take it <laughs> So I became Rob the salesman, uh, I bought a suit, yeah um, said to my wife, "Okay, I got work. you know now we can have the baby you know we're we're good
0: yeah." Don't hold the baby anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I, <laughs> I got the, I got
1: the job in May, and my daughter Heather was born in June, so yeah. it was it was pretty tight. And my wife had been working uh, at the in the publishing uh, office at uh, at Wilfrid Laurier, yeah. And she was very pregnant, and her friends at the, at the office kept saying, has Rob got work yet? You know, has Rob got it? Because you're going to have to leave soon." Yeah. So I took the sales job, and I said, well, this will just tide us over until I can figure out um, what's going on. 21 years later, I left the radio business. You did it for 21 years? I did.
0: Wow, I didn't know you did that for that long.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and uh, I actually turned my back on, on uh, music. Yeah. Didn't play the piano very much at all. Um, and convinced myself that as long as I thought of myself as a musician, I would never be a salesman.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and strangely enough, that worked to my advantage because my clients um, didn't think of me in the same light as a, as a, as a salesman. Yeah. <clears throat> I would go in and my pitch would be, I hate salespeople as much as you do, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm not here to do that. I'm here, I'm here to work for you, and, uh, and, and I would say to my clients, if there's ever uh, a problem, I will physically sit on your side of the table when you know when discussions have to happen. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I became very successful in the in the sales business. I was a vice president of sales uh, for a period of time. Uh, I worked. Uh, my last uh, radio job was with uh, the Chum uh, Radio Group mm-hmm. in their Kitchener stations. At the at the end of my broadcast career, the stations were called Cool FM and uh, Oldies 1090. Oh yeah. So I think there's now. Virgin Radio, and k I think that's what they are now. Yeah. Anyhow, um, they could not figure out how I was uh, so successful. I would, I would give my clients every benefit of the best possible rate. So I would renew their, their contracts uh, a couple of months before the rates go up. I oh, said, you'll wow. always be a year behind. Mm-hmm. And I negotiated things like uh, uh, discounts for advance payment, Mm-hmm. And I would say to my clients, it only hurts the first time. Then everything's there, and you know, anytime you want to cancel, you just call me up and say cancel. Yeah, and you don't owe anybody anything. Yeah. Um. That uh, uh that led me to be invited to a to a conference where I would share my wisdom mm-hmm. about being successful in sales. And I said, sure, you know, I'll tell people. And so I went to the conference, and the other salespeople were in the room, and they said, Rob, tell us the secret to your success. And I said, It's pretty easy. I don't work for you. <laughs> bye <Bye-bye>. bye. <Yeah.
2: laughs>
1: Within a few months, I was, uh, I was uh, asked to leave. Oh, really? Yes, yes. During that time, um, uh, during that 20 year period, um, m- my musician brain was still active, although I, I wasn't playing the piano. I didn't uh, present myself to my kids as a, as a musician, um, and I decided that I wanted to uh, write something that I could leave on the shelf for them after I'm gone. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I wanted it to be a long-form piece with no restrictions, like nothing, no form, classical form to it, just a uh, you know, um, stream of consciousness kind of writing. And uh, and I decided I needed a a, a boilerplate of story content that mm-hmm. I would be able to work with. And as a kid growing up in Wallsburg, you know, you go to the movie theater, and for a quarter, you could watch Frankenstein and Dracula and the Creature from the Black Lagoon and so on and so forth, and Help and yeah. <laughs> Hard Day's Night, all that stuff. So I picked up a copy of Frankenstein, um, uh, and I that was the only thing I read for three years. No? <laughs> it's uh it's not a very well written book yeah uh, mary shelley was only 17 when she wrote it so uh, it kind of jumps around a little bit and there are stories within the stories but i wanted to make sure that i could see a straight line in the story uh, before i started writing while i was while i was still uh, in in broadcast sales um so i wrote first i wrote the libretto or the script um uh but I had to think of it in musical terms. Uh, so the, so the, some, of the, some of the lyrics, if you will, are, are directly lifted from, uh, from the book the itself. Book, yeah. Some of them are sections of the book that I uh, collapsed into a smaller uh, smaller section. And, uh, and uh, I wrote it on an old, like one of the first laptops ever. <laughs> and um, when I finished it, um, I then wrote a rhythm book mm-hmm. because I wanted the I wanted the the singing style to feel like a, a elevated speech, okay. a as we call it in the in, in the classical world, right? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so when I finished the, the the rhythm book, then I went back and I wrote a melodic book because I wanted to use my education. To do thematic development, you know, within within uh, certain uh, uh, melodic lines, <clears throat> I studied twelve uh, tone composition when I was at school, so I utilized you know retrograde and and, and so uh, a minor uh, descending minor third became the uh, became the, the the main theme for the whole thing. Yeah, um, I sent it. I, I called around and I wanted to find an orchestrator because I didn't think. That I wanted to do this on my own. Someone referred me to Glenn Morley, uh, Glenn's uh, well-respected uh, writer and arranger in Toronto, uh, with Glenn Gould Societies and SOCAN board of directors and so on. So I sent him the libretto, and uh, he very kindly wrote back and said, "Don't change a word," which is a bad thing to tell somebody, yeah, because that encourages people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody tell me that it sucks so I can stop, please. Mm-hmm. So Glenn and I uh, worked at his studio in Toronto. Um, he had software that was starting to emulate instruments, yeah. and we created the score. Um, then um, um, I phoned a friend of mine who was an opera singer because my concept was that my, uh, my Damon character, the, the, the monster, if you will, mm-hmm. um, would be an opera singer. Okay. And the Victor character would be a musical theater star. Right. And my uh, narrator, uh, bookend narrator, Captain Walton, <clears throat> would be a rock star. Yeah. So through various you know uh, contacts, uh, Ted Berg, who's uh, at the uh, University of Western Ontario and is a very well-respected opera singer around the world, um, agreed. Uh, he and I went to school at Laurier. Uh, he agreed to sing the role of Damon. I said, well, you know what? You know that guy that's, that's the star of Les Mis in Toronto, mm-hmm. Michael Burgess? Yeah. I said, I'd really like to have him as my, as my uh, uh, Victor character. Oh, I know. You know so you said, I know Michael. So uh, he phoned Michael. Michael phoned me, and we, we said, OK, here we go. So I said, OK, so I've got these two guys. Now I need a rock singer. Who am I going to get to be a singer-rock singer? So I phoned uh, Pepe. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, why don't you call Rick Emmett? Rick's, uh, Rick's done with Triumph, you know, and yeah. and he might, say he might just do it. So I've, I got Rick's number and Rick said yes. That's <laughs> so, awesome. so I had my trio of, of guys. Uh, we ended up, and I'll, I'll try to abbreviate this story as much as I can. Um, when I was uh, bouncing around from jobs, one of my clients in Hamilton uh, felt sorry for me and mm-hmm. gave me a job trying to sell uh, flooring. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Fun. laughs> and so he said, well, what else are you doing musically? You know, what are, what are you doing? So I told him about Frankenstein he said, well, let's do it at Hamilton place. Mm. Okay. But I don't have any money. So we, he helped me cobble together some money. Uh, and, uh, uh I first did a, uh, a, a sampling, if you will, at, uh, in Toronto, uh, at a place called the Berkeley Church, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's still there, but it was a very old Gothic you know church with peeling paint on the back walls, oh, yeah. and so it was a perfect spot for, for me to do it. So I did a little presentation, and uh, and a gentleman came forward and said he wanted to invest, and so that's how we got you know the money to be able to do Hamilton Place. Uh, I think we sold 1,200 seats, I think something like that. Oh, um, yeah, it wasn't bad. Um, and uh, a guy from Wallaceburg showed up from my hometown. He said, I want to invest. I want to put some money in this. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I said, well, you're crazy, first of all. Um, but he's he wanted to do it. And um, turns out he and I are distant relatives. Of course, um, small towns, that's yeah. not a big stretch. <laughs> right. yeah. Everybody knows everybody. And, uh, and so we did, the, uh, we did the performance in Hamilton Place. Some other folks came along as investors. That show uh, has now played at Hamilton Place, the Berkeley Church. Um, uh, we did five performances, I think, at Casino Rama, oh, wow. which I'll tell you about in a mm-hmm. second. I think 7,000 people came out to see it there. Yeah. And then uh, I wanted to do it in the hippest, coolest place in New York City, that I could possibly find.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I got involved <clears throat> with a gentleman in New York, and he invited me to become involved with uh, something called the New York Musical Theater Festival. And uh, I said, well, you know, I, I, I don't really want people to judge me. I just want to do it. And he said, well, you can buy your way into the festival. Mm-hmm. So I said, Okay. So I bought my way in. As it turns out now, my company is one of the founding companies of the New York Musical Theater Festival. We played uh, we played it with tape and uh, New York uh, performers in a very small theater called The Belt. Uh, mm. uh, seats like 99 people. It's yeah. gone now. Um, but B.B. Neuwirth was doing a show <laughs> in the next room, basically, to us. And uh, Alec... Uh, Baldwin uh, was doing it there as well. And, uh, and so that came and went. And then I, I said, I, I want to do something really cool. So in 2009, I think it was, um, yeah, 2009, by the time I had kind of found my way out of the radio business and quasi uh, music, yeah. we played it uh, at a place called the Highline Ballroom in Greenwich Village. Um, if anybody knows the New York area, there's the High Line Railway mm-hmm. that goes down the West side, <clears throat> excuse me, it's now a, um, a walkway and the Highline Ballroom was right at the end of that. And Paul McCartney played there, Lady Gaga's played there, Queen Latifah. So it's kind of the hip, you know, cool place. Yeah. And we played it on Halloween night that night. Oh, cool. <laughs> that is one freaky place to be on uh, Halloween night. I bet. Uh, the East Village has the largest, uh, Halloween, uh, parade, in the world, yeah. uh, and everybody dresses up. Yeah. The general manager of Madison Square Garden showed up dressed as King Neptune. Okay. that <laughs> night. It was great. It was great. Um, so Frankenstein has, has carried me a bunch of different places. When I left the radio station, they gave me a buyout and, and an education component.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I said, okay, I want the cash for the education component. By that time I had made, I had, uh, I had Found my way to meet Moses Neimer
2: mm-hmm.
1: at City TV. <clears throat> and uh, Moses said, uh, Have you ever made a film? I said, No. He said, Why not? Well, I've never really thought about it. Yeah. And Bravo uh, TV was at that time handing out grants to make uh, short videos
2: mm-hmm.
1: on their thing. <clears throat> so I took uh, Michael Burgess into Lulu's. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> on a dark day, and we shot on film uh, one of the songs from Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, uh, which was great. It went to number one on the Bravo Fact Countdown, um, uh, which I'm uh, very pleased. I have a, a picture on the wall of that in my office. And uh, around that time, there was a website starting up called classmates.com. hmm so I thought, well, I'm going to put my name in find out what that's all about. Um, I was contacted by two former girlfriends from high school right away. <laughs> um, one of whom was living in Florida. And she said, so what are you doing? You know, in and, and email back and forth. And I told her. And she said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm living on Marco Island. And there's something called the Marco Island Film Festival. Oh yeah. Why don't you submit uh, your film and come, come down here and, and show it at the festival? Why not? So I send it down. They accept it. Um, and this is where all the serendipity starts happening, this kind of stuff. Um, so I went down to Florida on the on the education money, yeah, um, and <clears throat> played uh, played the Frankenstein several times through the course of the festival, not really thinking much of anything of it. You know, here I am in Florida. I'm at a film festival. this is great. yeah, And here's my film, Where's the bar, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, so the last night of the festival came along, and I was enjoying myself at the reception. Yeah. <laughs> and they were handing out the awards. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, and the, so the, the MC came up, and he said, and the award for uh, uh, best music in a short film goes to, ta-da, Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And it was the Tim Rice Award. And Tim co-wrote with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Mm-hmm. And Tim lived in Markholm Island. And so I won, um, you know, that award. Wow. Uh, they took us on, a, uh, on a, a filmmaker's cruise around Marco Island. Yeah. And I met the lady that was handing out sandwiches and I thought she looked really familiar and her name, her name is Mary Lee South. And so we were talking and she said, and, and where are you from? And I said, oh, up north. And she said, oh, the Hamptons? <laughs> 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 further. A little further north. A little further north. And so uh, later on, I was, I was told that that I probably shouldn't have been speaking with her, because she's somewhat of a celebrity, mm. and turns out she's Tom Cruise's mom. Oh no way! <laughs> I thought she looks familiar, so that's mm-hmm. what Tom would look like if if he was a he was a female. So while in Florida, uh, 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 my friend and her husband hosted me uh, for a dinner, and they had friends there from England, mm-hmm. and. They had a grand piano in the house, uh, and said, "Well, could you play something from Frankenstein?" "Well, sure, why not?" "Yeah, I'm still enjoying myself, key lime pie, and some champagne." And so these folks said, "Well, we might be able to help you over in England, really, to bring it to the West End. That would be wonderful." "Yeah." So I'm still on the education money, and I fly over to uh, England, <clears throat> and uh, and uh, met some uh, some rather dishonest people oh, yeah. that claimed that they could help, but there was no help. I mean, these folks were wonderful, but the people that they connected me with were really just yeah. wannabes, right? That's fine. I, you know, I enjoyed uh, England. I was right near um, uh, Covent Garden. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was a, a great experience. While I was there, uh, getting back to Heathrow, to the airport, my wife called and said, you'll never guess who called. I said, who? You'll never guess. <laughs> I said, <laughs> Okay. Uh, can't you tell me? Uh, No, you have to guess. I said, I'm in England. It's a five hour flight to get home. You know, you've got to tell me. So she didn't tell me until I got home. And, uh, she said, Larry called. I said, Larry, who's, who's Larry? She said, Larry Gregson. Mm -hmm. I said, oh my God, I haven't talked to Larry Gregson for 20 years. Yeah. Larry, uh, at the end of my Mercy Brother career, was general managing the Mercy Brothers Recording Studio. Mm-hmm. And he had started working with Marie. So uh, he and I, you know, did some of the Marie stuff and we went out and found uh, a band or he found the band and I approved and rehearsed with them. And it was Bill Carruthers and uh, and his family band yep. at the time with uh, Dave playing Steel and, and uh, the other fellows I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm getting old. Um, so... I knew that Larry had been had gone to Nashville after the Mercy Studio closed, and then I had heard that he went to Las Vegas because I'm jumping around here. But he and I had done a record in about 1980 or so with an artist by the name of Ruth Ann Wallace, mm-hmm. and uh, I did a couple of singles for her. And I think we won Best New Artist, I think, with Ruth Ann mm-hmm. um, at that time. And so Larry uh, connected with uh, Irving Azoff in L.A. And Irving said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a budget and, uh, and a three-record deal. So I think he gave us $100,000 or something like that. Yeah. And uh, uh, I never managed the money, thank God. But contracted the players. We went to Nashville. <clears throat> we worked at a place that the, at that time was called uh, Music City Music Hall. Mm-hmm. which is the old uh, RCA Studio A, yeah. okay, the big room. Um, and so I had uh, David Briggs, I had Larry Paxton, I had all of the A players at the time, brought in Charlie McCoy, um, um, brought in the Nashville String Machine to yeah. do the, the it really did uh, you know, a good record. And uh, uh, at that time, I'm sorry for jumping around, but this is the way my brain works these days. Yeah. Um, I had been working in Cambridge, so I said, I'm going to take my holidays, and I'm going to go down to Nashville. I'm going to make this record, and then I'll be back. So while we were in Nashville, um, uh, which was a wonderful experience, um, we got a call from Irving and said, I'd like you guys to come out to L.A. to do a song for a movie that we're working on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So Irving had just uh, finished. Uh, he was doing the music supervision, or his company was, for... Um, um, Urban Cowboy mm-hmm. okay, with Johnny Lee and they had just done uh, oh gosh another animated movie I can't remember the name of it Anyway, uh, and he had a music guy Bob Dostocky and so I had to call home and say I'm not coming home I'm going to <laughs> LA and so they flew us to LA and, uh, and they said the movie uh, the, the, while we're in LA you're going to do the song for the movie you're going to do Duet with Johnny Lee Mm-hmm. Okay, um, And the song's called I Keep Running Back to You. Johnny only sings in one key, so you have to do it in this key. Yeah. So they sent us to the record plant mm-hmm. to rehearse, and then we, uh, we were at Westlake Audio on Beverly Boulevard in, in, uh, in L.A. with um, Irene Cara was there, Qu- uh, Quincy Jones. Uh, they were doing the Bad album with Michael Jackson at that time, oh, yeah. I think, in, in, the, in that building. So we did the record. Uh, they said, when you're here, you can, um, y- you can get anybody from Full Moon Records to play as a guest on Ruth Ann's record. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, um, I'd like Don Henley and Glenn Frey. Okay, no problem. So uh, we're all prepared to go into the session. And, uh, oh, and I said, and Don Felder to play guitar. Oh, yeah. Okay. And Irving said, no problem. So we went to the studio, uh, got up that morning to go to the studio, and Irving called and said that Glenn and Don had had a fight. <laughs> no surprise. Mm-hmm. And they had gone their separate ways, so they weren't available. Yeah. But we're going to send in J.D. Souther mm-hmm. and Timothy Schmidt wow. to sing. So I was in the control room, uh, with, or in the studio rather, at the piano with J.D. and Timothy, singing with those two guys. Mm-hmm. They said, "Well, what do you want us to sound like?" I said, I "Want you to sound like the Eagles." Come on. Yeah. And uh and so they uh they did a great job. Um they had some recreational um stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> while we were there. <clears throat> and I asked the my because we were doing it for Warner Brothers at the time. And I said, so how does this go on the budget? And he said, miscellaneous entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> and then Don came in and did uh, several overdubs. He was terrific. And I called my wife from the studio. I said, I've, I've arrived. I'm here. I, this is it. You know? Because uh, I said, J.D.'s going out with Linda Ronstadt right now. And, mm-hmm. you know... Timothy's here, and all these guys are here, and I made it. And then I said, and they booked us uh, an interview with a syndicated country music writer in Chicago. So on the way home, we're going to stop in Chicago. We're going to do this national news thing, and uh, so I was thrilled. Thrilled. Um, I got home, and the announcement was made that Irving had uh, accepted the job as the president of MCA Home Entertainment. Oh, yeah. So suddenly Warner Brothers wasn't interested in the song. And now I'll go back to the song. I Keep Running Back For You was intended for the first vacation movie. Mm-hmm. There's a point where Chevy Chase is in the, is in the pool mm-hmm. with Christy Brinkley, And the uh, uh, I can't remember the other actress's name comes out and sees them. Yeah. Right. So there was a scene. I'm not sure if it ever made it to the movie or not. But there's a, it, Chevy Chase was supposed to go into the bar. Hmm. And this song was supposed to be playing on the jukebox. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Warner said, forget it. We don't want the song. So, <laughs> another sad story for Rob. Yeah. Uh, I've got another sad one, too. I'll, I'll come back to it a second because I, I take great pleasure in, in my sadness. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we came back and Irving uh, went to MCA Home Entertainment. So Warner's didn't want the record. So we put it on MCA and uh, then it had to be vetted by um, uh, uh, MCA Nashville. Mm -hmm. Can't remember the guy's name who was running MCA Nashville, but uh, he uh, explained not to me, so this is indirect and I don't even know how accurate it is, that he got points on every record that went across his desk. Oh, yeah. So the my understanding of the reaction was not this time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Fine. Okay. So we had, we had recorded, I think, 15 songs for a 12-song for a album. And this gentleman uh, picked the very worst of the bunch as the first release. Mm-hmm. We got a contractual release uh, in the back rows of Walmart. <laughs> and The yep. record died. The good news is Ruthann uh, uh, is doing very, very well. Uh, her husband uh, is David Onley,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. the f- former lieutenant, lieutenant Governor of Ontario. Yeah. So every once in a while, I, I, I bump into uh, people that know Ruth Ann, and so they, they enjoy that story. So, yeah, that, uh, so that ended. Um, and that fast forward, you know, a bunch of years. During my uh, looking for work period, uh, Pee Wee felt that um, I should be playing piano with Gord. Lightfoot, Yeah. He didn't have a piano player at the time, and I said, oh, that'd be great. So they invited me out to a bunch of shows, and, and so I got to meet Gord and Rick and Barry and the, the other guys. And we got to be friends-ish, you know, as much as you can in, in that in that kind of world. And uh, Gord and I talked about how we were going to handle tuning and all the rest of that stuff. Um, and I have a picture of Gord with my daughter on one knee and, and Pee-wee's daughter on the other knee, oh, yeah. which is kind of kind of neat. And uh, so Ed said, well, we go into the studio every January, and then we, we go to Massey Hall in the spring, and that's where we play the stuff from the new yeah, record. Yeah. I said, great. So he said, Gord does things spur of the moment. So you have to be ready for that. I said, that's fine. So I learned every. Um, I learned how to play guitar picking style on the piano. Yeah. So that I could emulate, or I could help, you know, along with that, and I learned pretty much all of Gord's material. Um, so they were in the studio in January, uh, and Gord said, "Get the piano player." So, uh, Pee Wee ran for the phone, mm-hmm. and so did the engineer. <laughs> I wasn't home. Oh no. <laughs> So the next time I was in Gord's presence, he very graciously said, you know, that he was sorry that it didn't work out. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's fine. So, yeah, that's my, that's one of my, one of my many sad stories, stories. <laughs> sad stories. So, you know, fast forward again, way, way up. And uh, so Larry <clears throat> Gregson, when I got home from England, I called Larry and, and he said, how would you like to do what we used to do? Sure. Why not? I got nothing else to do, you know? Yeah not working <clears throat> and uh, uh Larry had uh, uh, discovered a young lady in Nashville and uh <clears throat> invited me up to start uh working with her and during our conversations he said um you know uh, I booked these big acts to come into Casino Rama mm-hmm. but what I'd really like to be able to do is to is to uh be more in control of of timing because you have to wait for touring, routing, you know, and all the rest of that stuff, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Yeah. And so I said, well, I could do that. So uh, we decided that uh, we would try a licensed theater piece. And so I went to my buddies in New York that I had made friends with by this point, and we got uh, a casino license to play Forever Plaid. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is a very small show. Yeah. Um, and it's usually played in front of like 300 people. I think our smallest audience was 1,500. Yeah. <laughs> and our largest was 3,500 to see the show. And it worked. You know, uh, we would play that show from Sunday through Wednesday. The headliners would come in Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. And we'd rotate like that. <clears throat> then uh, Larry uh, moved to uh, Fallsview Casino in Niagara Falls. Yeah. And he invited me to come and do uh, Forever Play It Again, so we did it and worked very well. Fifteen hundred seat room there,
2: yeah.
1: Uh, and then he said, "Well, let's try something else." So uh, then I got the license to do Nonsense, and uh, and we brought that in. We did a kind of casino jig to it, you know, uh, to make it twerk it a little bit, yeah. Um, and it uh, it did fine as well. And then he said, uh, um, "Why don't uh, you write something that?" You could own so when it came time to uh, uh write a show the the music that i was most familiar with initially was country music mm-hmm. and uh um, i felt that the people in the audience um, would not just like country music they would love country music
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that i had to I had to find a way to um, entertain them without uh showering them with uh famous names mm-hmm. so I knew the i I knew the, the the music that that you know was most interesting and I again like with Frankenstein I felt that i needed I needed a a hook to hang the show on yeah <clears throat> excuse me so um instead of just you know, playing music just with with people that that the audience wouldn't know. I felt that would bore them, yeah, um, so i uh, I started thinking of how i would how I would organize the music because this is working with well-known music.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So went through the vetting process, a lot of it with Larry, um, to determine which songs people in the audience who didn't like country music would still recognize. Yeah. Okay. So it was very tough because you have to rule out some songs that it, I, I would really like, you know, but, but I had to, I had to imagine that the guy or the lady sitting in the audience wouldn't know it yeah. and, and I would lose them as an audience. So uh, the, the list ended up being like 50 songs or something like that. So I thought, well, how on the earth am I going to do this? I know. So I tell people this with a straight face. I imagine myself at a party mm-hmm. and we're all singing these songs that we know. And when we're singing, you know, the chorus and the verse of the bridge and then we go la 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 because we don't know the next ones, that's when I'm going to stop right there. Yeah. So I will use the most recognizable sections of each song. Yeah. And I will create suites not medallies but but suites of songs put them in chronological order starting from 1950 leading up to the present day and then when I get to uh my artists I'll ask each of the artists what one country song they'd like to do in its entirety Mm -hmm. so a full-length song so we would go through that process to do that and then I thought okay that's all well and good, but, you know, we're going to come up with 80 or 90 minutes of music that doesn't mean anything other than, hey, you sing well, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. So I knew that I had to create a, uh, a thread that people could uh, hang on to to tell the story. Mm-hmm. So the title of the show became Country Classics, which was clearly what you're going to hear. And then the subtitle was Treasures from the Attic. And uh, so the concept was really pretty simple. Uh, a man gets sent up to the attic every spring to clean it out and can't because of all the memories that live in the attic, the yeah. 78s and the cassettes. And so we would go through the, the course of time. <clears throat> and uh, in order to be able to tell those stories, little vignettes, I had to determine, I'm a, I'm a very analytical guy, as you'll find out. I decided that I didn't want to have that character talk for any more than 10 minutes over the entire piece. Yeah. So all the vignettes would bridge sections of time or styles of music and I would be the subject. So because I was sent up to the attic every year to clean it out. Yeah. And so you see cribs and you see, you know, family albums that get shoved up into the attic because you don't want them in the house. And yet when you go up there, you say, well, I remember that from when I was a kid, or my uncle played that, and it's my uncle's ukulele, and so on and so forth. And um, so what you end up with is a real heartfelt uh, storyline that is so thin that it's really easy to follow, and there's easy jokes. Like there's a joke in in, uh, country classics where... I have the uh, the character pick up two uh, basketballs, hold them in front of him. The first thing he says, "You remember Dolly Parton?" Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so the cheap laughs are always the best. Yeah. Right. And uh, um, uh, it ended up being really successful, really successful, and uh, and the audience loved it. And we ended end the show with. Uh, you know, the hymn of country music, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Mm-hmm. And uh, we play Orange Blossom Special, and the audience just followed with us completely. And uh, so we would, again, at Fallsview, we would play like Sunday through Thursday and load everything out, and then Dolly Parton would come in on the weekend and yeah. do her thing. And it proved to be very, very successful for the for the casino. Yeah. Um, because our, our focus was not you're working in a casino, our focus was you're playing to an audience, you know, so you want that audience. And, and uh, at that time, Larry said to me, There's only one rule Glenn Fry is on before you, Dolly Parton is on after you, and then Reba McIntyre. So you have to be as good as or better than them. Yes. It's no pressure, no pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that show was so successful, they came back and he said, "Can you do one? Can you build one on the same foundation uh, for uh, '50s music?"
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Sure, <laughs> I have my little formula, you yeah. know. And so I created uh, uh, Cruising Classics," um, and the subtitle for that is "A Night at the at the Diner." Oh yeah, same thing. Uh, the the script came out of my hometown experiences with a. a an uh, uh, ice cream shop that I used to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the family that owned it were kind enough to let me use their family name. The name of the, uh, the place is called Chuck's and so on.
2: Yeah.
1: <clears throat> so that was also very successful. And, and this past summer, um, we ran it for 10 weeks, sold out for 10 weeks. Uh, it did really well. Um, when I was in Nashville auditioning for the country show, um, I called, and I was auditioning a lot of very talented, uh, female singers and male singers, but females in particular. And I, I was saying to some of my friends at the CAA, you know, why don't these, why don't these young ladies have deals?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they said, cause nobody's looking literally. Yeah. So I said, well, what, what would happen if I looked? And they said, you'd be the only one. <laughs> 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 okay. So I phoned up and I said, uh, I've got an idea for a show uh, just called Six Chicks mm-hmm. because it rhymes. Yeah. And each of these girls comes to Nashville with dreams of being stars. And so the storyline would be, these girls all come to Nashville. So here, here's the up-and-comers. Right? Yeah. Again, you know, really successful. We would do, we would do autograph lines, after the shows, and you know, five or six hundred people would sign line up for autographs for people that he didn't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then and that whole thing, you know, and came up and they said, Well, let's do a big classic rock show, okay? Yeah, so I created World Rock Symphony Orchestra. There's 50 people on stage for that show, wow. um, and it's been playing for years. Uh, we're playing in Kitchener again uh, this coming fall. Um, and then my wife came home. She, By this point, she had started working at Center in the Square.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she s- asked me, she said, have you ever considered doing an Elvis show? And I said, oh, God, no. <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> well, I met this guy who's doing a show for the firefighters, and it was creepy, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, he came in and he sat in the boardroom, didn't say a word, but my God, did he look like Elvis. Yeah. I said, okay. So she dragged me out to see him, uh, literally, I, I was not an Elvis fan, um, to see him at a couple of theaters, and I had lunch with him, and uh, found out that he knows that he's not Elvis, mm-hmm. which is a big <laughs> part of that world, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I went to the casino, and I said, have you guys ever thought of doing an Elvis show, and they said, yes and no, mm-hmm. yes, we thought of it, no, we never will, because they're all crap, Yeah, basically. And I said, well, what if what if what if I created a show that was completely and totally respectful of the audience? Folks who like Elvis are often ridiculed uh, because of the way they dye or wear their hair, mm-hmm. or because they have sideburns and they like <clears throat> glitter coats and so on and so forth. And I said, But really they're no different than deadheads or parrot or any other, you know, hardcore fan. Yeah. But they most most impersonator shows, and I'll use that in the most derogatory way. Yeah. are cheesy. Yeah, and they they make fun of the character, um, and these folks, they're very serious. They they are in love with that character. Yeah. So I said, what if I created a show that was in love with the audience? And uh, so I brought uh, Steve, uh, a fellow that uh, does the show, uh, in, and uh, for a piano and voice audition on stage, and he was not very good. Oh, yeah. He was very nervous. Yeah. And so I said, "Well, <clears throat> let me bring him back in with a with a track that he's used to. We'll put him in costume and I'll put a spotlight on him, and we'll see what happens." Yeah. And, uh, so he came back in during a break in one of the other shows that I was doing and, uh, they brought all the executives in and they said, uh, at the end, they said, we'll take 24 shows oh. <laughs> in a row, like yeah. in, in one, in one, I don't think i had ever seen a 24 show run there before. Yeah. And so I, I, I did what I, what I wanted to do, which was to fall in love with the audience to respect the music, and I would say, and I say this in all the shows, you know, when we're in rehearsal, um, we're playing for people who love this stuff, and if you don't love this stuff, go home. Yeah. Because it'll show, and we'll lose the audience, they'll turn on us, and and it, it, it just won't work. Yeah. So, um, and I said, we're going to do this the right way. So Return to Grace has um, a five-piece rhythm section, we have uh, eight background singers, a full-on gospel quartet, um, uh, a trio of, of ladies, and a descant. Um, uh, five strings, five horns, six dancers. So there are 30, thirty-one people on stage altogether, and a narrator. Yeah, and so it, following my template of the of the narration, <clears throat> I determined that the audience the audience kind of turned away from the bad parts of Elvis's life. Mm-hmm. So I determined that the last time that he was really in good shape and really at top was the Aloha concert. Yeah. So we, we take it right, right from 1954 right through until the end of the Aloha concert. And that show has, it's the most successful show in the history of that casino. Um, it's taken us to Bangkok uh, for two performances, wow. <laughs> believe it or not. We did a tour of Western Canada uh, in in May of, of this year. Uh, we'll go back into a Mervish uh, building in Toronto for the third time. Yeah, we played two uh, runs at the Ed Mervish Theater, which is the old Pantages Theater where Phantom played.
2: Yeah,
1: um, and we've grossed. Seven figures there, you know, which is pretty good, yeah. and uh, and now we're going into the Princess of Wales, which is the biggest theater in the country and the in mo- the biggest city in the country, you know. So it's 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 a nice, nice spot. Oh yeah. I have gradually moved off the stage myself. Yeah. Um. So, perhaps these days I'm better known for producing shows at Fallsview. Yeah. Uh, better known for that than I am as a piano player but I end up being the de facto music director um, doing the arrangements um, all of the casting um, the set design (laughs) all of that stuff and it's it's really because I enjoy all those elements and so my career has really not taken me in the same path as a lot of my friends Um, and so I think I'm a little different than a lot of them. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not out there. I'm kind of enigmatic. I'm
0: kind of under the surface, you know. Yeah, kind of fly I, under the radar. I
1: know a lot mm-hmm. of people, and and like I say, uh, uh, I'm friends with people who work with other people. So I'll give an example. Uh, I auditioned and hired a guy by the name of Scott Sheriff. Mm-hmm a piano player in Nashville. Scott is now Carrie Underwood's piano player. Oh, yeah. uh, same day, I auditioned a guy by the name of Randy Liego, <clears throat> also a piano player
2: yeah.
1: and a sax player. And Randy is uh, now with the Beach Boys. Oh, yeah. uh, in New York, I met uh, Robert Martin, who's better known perhaps as Bobby Martin. And Robert uh, played with Frank Zappa uh, for many years. And if you Google whipping posts and Robert Martin, you'll see him in Spain with with Frank doing his thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> when I uh, so when I go out looking for people, it's like who do you know? You know. Yeah. Uh, so when I did my rock and soul show, which was an R and B version of my classic rock show, yeah, I hired uh, John Legend's horn section. Mm-hmm. I hired um, uh, Mike. Uh, no, I'm going to forget Mike's last name. Miller, Mike Miller from Chick Corea's mm-hmm. band. Yeah. I hired uh, guys from um, um, the Lincoln Center Orchestra uh, in uh, in uh, New York. One sax player that played with Whitney Houston for many, many years, uh, Terrence Higgins, who's Ani DeFranco's drummer, um, uh, uh, Sharon uh, Hendrix, who's mm-hmm. uh, Jimmy's niece. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so I've been really lucky. I know all these really, really incredible people. A C.C. Winans guitar player works for me. Um, a, a background singer with C.C. C. Winans is, is one of my singers that I've hired before. Yeah. And um, so I think I have a reputation of being a pretty decent guy to work with. Yeah. Um, uh, so w- honestly, when you called me, I was very surprised and very flattered. So thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Oh no problem it's it's a, a fascinating career um, and I mean it, it's neat I think with everybody in the music industry uh, I you, you tend to go through phases right yep. and um, you know you get your start and you always have somewhere to go uh, but you just never know where you're going to end up which is um, you know true for me as well and and I look back. When I started, I didn't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now. Oh. Um, but it's neat, and it's all from people you meet. And, and you know, I always say relations are the most important thing in the music industry. Absolutely. And Because uh, what you're doing now doesn't mean what you're going to be doing tomorrow. And, and that doesn't mean that's a bad thing. It just means uh, you got to be diverse enough to be able to do something else.
1: Well, you know, in the, in the accident world, <clears throat> when I was working on uh, World Rock Symphony Orchestra... I was tracking uh, the success of Trans-Siberian Orchestra mm-hmm. in the US and felt that uh, at some point they're going to you know, they're gonna wane. Yeah. Right? And, and uh, so I thought, well, it would be really cool to put this big honking classic rock show on the road. So I thought, well, how am I going to do this? Oh, I know. I'll call the guy who general manages Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Mm-hmm. So I found out who he was. I've looked up his website, and there was a phone number on the website. I phoned the number. Yeah, I get a guy saying, who is this? So I told him who I was. How'd you get my number? <laughs> I said, it's on, it's on your yeah. website. He was in rehearsal with trans Siberian Orchestra in Omaha. Oh, yeah. And they rehearse. They have two touring companies. Yeah. So one is at one end of the arena doing tech, and the other one's doing music. And then they switch back and forth over a 10-day period. Yeah. So David and I have been friends now for a long, long time. And he general, I got him to general manage our Western tour of Return to Grace, and he's now brought in some of his friends. Mm -hmm. So we're now unofficially being represented by William Morris in Los Angeles.
2: Yeah, and
1: so the good news is you're with William Morris, and the bad news is you're with William Morris Uh, because you never know where you are in the in the ladder. Yeah, Uh, so. Apparently, we're about to find out whether or not we're going to be touring uh, again through the U.S. Yeah. So that could become a, a long-term uh, thing. Could be short-term. Could be nothing. I could be, you know, back at the grocery store next week. <laughs> and the weird thing is, I'm okay with that.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that you have to be. Um, yeah. And I think the world of music and touring and doing everything... Um, Means you got to do the big shows, you got to do the small shows, and that's right, and everything in between, and you have to be okay with all of that. So
1: absolutely, yeah. and you know the nicest thing, the nicest thing is when, is when somebody in the audience uh, approaches you and said, in some way you've affected them in a positive way. Yeah, that's really where the. <clears throat> the, best, the best time of the, of, the, of the night is you watch for the standing ovation, hope, hoping that it comes. Yeah. Then you hope that it starts at the back of the room because that's a legit, you know, standing O. And then somebody stops and says, you know, you said something that made me remember something or, or I feel better now having been here. And so whether you're performing for five people or 5,000 people... It really doesn't matter,
0: no, in our world, yeah, I always look at it as as you're performing a show for individually for every single person there absolutely, it's not for the group, it's just for that you're doing you know if you've got five hundred people in the audience, you're doing five hundred shows no. at the same time
1: and yet i've seen I've seen some performers who do that yeah it's it's there's there's a fourth wall, and they don't break it yeah. I'm very much in favor of talking to the audience. And that's, that's why my scripts all uh, sp- speak past the, the musicians and speak directly to the audience. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen you and your, your family do that here. And, and the audience, you know, they feel they know you've spoken directly to them.
0: Yeah, it makes a big difference. They huge. want to feel like you're a part of what's going on. So huge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been a, a, an awesome conversation and, uh, I know a lot more about you now. <laughs> uh, f- yeah. Fascinating. And I know that you, uh, have returned, uh, it's returned to grace as the Elvis show, right? That's correct. Yeah. And that's coming up. Uh, so if you see any, any Rob shows out there, make sure you check them out. They're all, uh, uh, they're all fantastic. And I know you put a lot of work into them and it's, uh, it's been very successful. So that's. A Congratulations. Thanks, Darren. And uh, we'll hope to uh, work and uh, see you much more in the future. You bet. All right. Thank you.